Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, we have Matthew Bates. Matt teaches at Quincy University in Quincy, Illinois. We're going to talk today about a wide range of things, including ancient exegesis, prosopological exegesis, some of the work that he has done there on the Trinity and how the early church um, interpreted their Old Testament in order to start building a case for, or at least understanding how Jesus and the Holy Spirit might be divine. We also talk about his book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. This book was uh, very popular. It's really gotten a lot of attention. He's definitely gotten in some hot water with some conservative Christians saying that he is uh, denying the Reformation, critiquing the Reformation, maybe even toying with denying the classic doctrine of justification by faith alone. So I gave him an opportunity just to clear that up on his side. You can basically listen to it and decide for yourself whether he's right or wrong, but I think he at least lays out a good case for his side of the argument. We also talk about the fact that he has seven kids, seven. So I asked him to give us the craziest story that he has from having seven children. We also talk about fiction books and had a lot of fun with him. You also should check out his podcast, On Script. That was truthfully one of the hero podcasts, one of the inspirations for this podcast. So I hope you go check that out for more conversations similar to these. This episode is sponsored by B&H Academic. As always, you can go to bhacademic.com to see their catalog and latest releases. You can also check out the Christian Standard Bible, our other sponsor, at csbible.com. And now, our conversation with Matt, and No Big Deal is going to lead us there. I'm here with Matthew Bates in this uh, swanky conference room here at ETS. Matt, how are you, man? It's wonderful to be with you. Thanks, Brandon. So you have uh, an entire baseball team for a family, from what I've gathered. You have seven kids? I have seven kids, yeah. If my wife pitches and I catch, yep. Baseball <laughs> team right there. Uh, we won't take that any further than that, though. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's good. Uh, so you got seven kids. What is the, uh, what's the craziest story of having seven kids from the last year? Oh, from the last year? Oh, yeah. or or any time, any any just crazy memory of of having seven kids that none yeah. of us can relate to because none of us have seven kids. Well, you know, there's always the the birthing adventure stories. Um, with one particular uh, child, we went to the hospital, uh, and even though we already had three, I think this is our fourth child. Uh, no, this was our this was our our uh, third. Uh, even though we'd already had two, and, and my wife, you know, was uh, pr- pretty experienced in terms of knowing where she was at, the hospital sent us away saying she wasn't far enough along. Uh, and so my wife is kind of a, um, she's somewhat of a meek-souled person. And uh, so with the doctor turned her away, I mean, she's not going to complain and fight, right? Mm-hmm, she's, mm-hmm. Uh, so we went home, and uh, and meanwhile, they gave her some sleeping medicine, you know, to help her to sleep through the evening cause, so she could maybe make some progress and come back. So she's all, like, drugged up and just, you know, bizarre. So anyway, she I could see she was kind of laboring through the night, you know, but she I kept saying, well, maybe we should go in, right? And she's like, she's like, no, 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 the doctor told me, you know, we shouldn't be, be, be at the hospital yet, you know, and so... Uh, the tension's mounting in my own heart, right? As I'm like, man, this yeah, yeah, seems yeah. like she's making progress. We got to get this this woman back into the hospital, or we're gonna have this baby at home. And I 
absolutely do not want to deliver this baby, right? So finally, like, she gets up, she takes a shower, and she keeps talking about how, you know, she feels like she needs to go to the bathroom. Like, we got to get to the hospital, right? So we finally get to the hospital. We check in, uh, and they're like, well, well, why don't you, you go back and do a urine sample, and then, you know, and then we'll maybe we'll take you back to, to get you in a birthing room or whatever and, uh, and get you checked. And so anyway, she goes in to give the urine sample, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, she starts shouting, like, the baby's coming! Oh, man. So, yeah, <laughs> so I dash in there, and but she's already got the baby in her hands. Oh uh, my gosh. Uh, you know, by the time. So she delivered yeah, in the hospital bathroom. Uh, yeah, self-delivery. Wow. Yeah. So talk about uh, uh, an impressive woman. That's a strong right? woman. Yeah, that's a strong uh, yeah. woman. So, yeah, yeah we, she's uh, great. We, uh, we only have two, so we don't have near the stories. But yeah, yeah. it's it interesting how when, when my wife, especially with the first one, when she went into labor, I was just sure she was having a baby well before she was sure she was having a baby, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then she was like, well, you know, they told me this and that. And then we ended up having a 17-hour uh, deliver, uh, you know, process in the hospital. And then the second one, I was like, okay, well, maybe we shouldn't freak out about anything. And it was like, you know, three hour, it was just like really yeah. quick happened right away. So I'm guessing in your seven kids, you realize that you probably can't predict any of them, you, but yeah, not, not quite. That one was the most unpredictable, <laughs> but yeah. all right. So let's talk a little bit about just your educational background, kind of, uh, how you grew up as a Christian or you didn't grow up as a Christian or kind of how, how that all happened. How'd you ended up in a scholarship? Did you ever think about being a pastor? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, um, I grew up in a sort of conservative, fundamentalist, um, independent Bible church. It was not affiliated with any denomination because, um, yeah, even the denominations in town that were likewise conservative were uh, perhaps a little bit suspect and corrupt in some obscure way that I couldn't quite detect as a child. Right. Um, but yeah, there was a tendency to want to uh, to be isolated. It was a kind of a King James only sort of church, very conservative. Um, but I don't. Um, yeah, I, I still remain conservative myself. Um, I wouldn't put myself in the fundamentalist camp. Depending on who um, you ask, I guess. Yeah, huh? I suppose. Yeah, that's a that's sort of a relative term. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't put myself in the fundamentalist camp, yeah. but nevertheless, some people are very bitter over that, you know, sort of that, um, maybe fundamentalist upbringing as they, as they eventually learn more and, um, maybe at least some parts that should be left behind behind while maybe embracing, you know, some of the core things, but mm -hmm. the people uh, at that church certainly love Jesus and, um, they taught me to love Jesus. And, um, even if they were misguided in, in some of their sensibilities about, about uh, intellectual matters or what the Bible is or can do for us and how it fits into an overall theological framework, even if there was some naivety there, um, they had great hearts. And uh, so uh, my story would essentially be that my mom um, was was a kind of a devout, uh, personal, pri private Christian. Uh, she taught us Bible verses and things like that. Uh, so one of my first memories would, would be, you know, quote unquote, accepting Jesus into my heart, uh, whatever that might mean. Um, but uh, after that, then we didn't go to church particularly until I was in junior high. And that's when we got involved in this church that I just described. Uh, so I was baptized in that church and then was at that church through high school. But I had some pretty serious intellectual questions and something seemed a little bit off center there. I mean, there was some great things, but there were also um, some pretty staunch legalisms that that were troubling to me, and I felt that weren't at the heart of Christianity, and I don't think it was even just a rebellious thing. You know, as as I wasn't a particularly rebellious teenager, um, but something didn't sit right. Mm. Um, so I had a lot of questions, and and I thought maybe well, the way to figure out what's true is science. Science is prestigious in our culture, so I thought maybe I should go study science at university, and and that's what I did. I, I started a, a physics track um, with the thought maybe I would go engineering, uh, maybe I would stay in physics. Um, and I ended up staying and doing a physics degree. But along the way, 
uh, I took an introduction uh, to the New Testament class, and that was a real pivotal changing point in my life. That was at Whitworth? Yeah, it was at Whitworth University, and uh, it was a, a January term intensive course taught by Roger Morling, uh, who had been a Wycliffe Bible translator and had lived in a mud hut in Africa and translated the Bible, you know, for some obscure, you know, African tribe. Right, yeah. Yeah, just a, an amazingly... The real stuff, yeah. Yeah, an amazingly <laughs> pious, just um, great man. Uh, and anyway, but as, as he lectured on the New Testament for several hours a day, and I did nothing but read scripture, I'd read the Bible a fair bit, but I discovered I had no idea how to read it, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that, I, that I had no, no hermeneutic, or whatever hermeneutic I had was, was deficient and, and hadn't really been able to grasp like larger messages of the books. Mm-hmm. I was good at like maybe proof texting, but hadn't really, really learned how to read the Bible well. And this was really eye-opening to me. So it sort of captivated me intellectually, captivated me spiritually, kind of cleaned up some sin issues in my life that were going on at that time. And um, yeah, so um, from there then, I began to get more seriously interested in um, academic biblical studies. Yeah, and then so you ended up at Notre Dame? A PhD at Notre yeah, Dame. eventually. So yeah, in, in between then, I, I took a job as an electrical engineer. I uh, did okay. that for a couple of years uh, and then got married and then went to seminary at Regent College in Vancouver, BC with Gordon Fee and Ian Proven, mm-hmm. Rick Watts, uh, some some figures like that uh, who were a, a good influence in my life too. And then, yeah, after that was out of money. So we came back to, <laughs> to California to where I grew up and I worked as an engineer again for a while, an electrical engineer, and then, and then to Notre Dame where I did the PhD. Okay, so and when you got to Notre Dame, did you know, I want to do some sort of New Testament theology type degree? Did you have any idea where you wanted to go, or did you kind of figure that out along the way? Uh, no, certainly, yeah, when you start into a PhD program, usually you're pretty you're pretty yeah. seriously tracked in a certain direction. So, yeah. So did you I, get that while you were in seminary at Regent? Is that where you kind of figured that out? At, yeah, well, at Regent I had done a biblical studies degree, mm-hmm. so I'd taken comprehensive exams in both New and Old Testament and had done both my Greek and my Hebrew. But, yeah, I certainly had a more affinity in the New Testament direction. So uh, at, at Notre Dame, you you have an emphasis um, and you write dissertation in a certain area, but it's a pretty broad program. Even mm-hmm. within that, you do take so you kind of have a major area and a minor area. So my major area then was New Testament and early Christianity. So even when you do New Testament, you're you can't just do that. You have to go into the Apostolic Fathers and to you know into into beyond the New Testament proper. And then your my minor area was was uh, Hebrew Bible, Second Temple Judaism. So uh, you could have done my minor area could have been like the later period after the early fathers, right? Mm-hmm. If you've done a minor there or in some other area. But that that would be a lot of people who do New Testament, that would be oftentimes your more minor concentration would be Second Temple Judaism uh, and Hebrew Bible. So so you do, of course, as part of that, your your Hebrew training as well as your Greek. And yeah. Yeah. And so you not my mic over here. Uh, so you ended up doing a uh, a PhD with David Ani, Apostolic Hermeneutics, sort of focusing on Paul. So uh, mm-hmm. how'd you get into that? Talk through sort of that process of how you how you picked that out because I think a lot of seminarians listen and they think about doing PhDs and they don't they you know two years three years in the seminary you have no clue what you want to do with your life and it always helps to hear other guys say here's kind of how I got through there how I decided that or how I worked yeah. through it so. Well, I was pretty certain coming in that I wanted to write on Paul. So um, my preliminary ideas w- were that I wanted to do something 
um, in terms of Paul and his social world, but I didn't know what. Um, there was also, in addition to David, uh, Jerry Nary was there, Jerome Nary. Uh, and uh, so he, he was a, a fairly major player in kind of soci sociological and cultural context approach to the New Testament. Uh, so um, I thought I might work with him. I, I didn't know if I'd work with David or with him, or uh, John Meyer was there doing historical Jesus studies. I could, you, at, at that point, I could have certainly switched within New Testament uh, and done something else. But Paul was sort of where I was angling. So as I was sort of thinking through approaches, one of the things that was enriching about the context at Notre Dame is as I moved to study the early church fathers more than I had ever done before, um, it, it, it opened up some space for me to think about um, what is it that, that the Guild of New Testament Studies is missing in terms of the continuity between the New Testament and the early church fathers? Because they, obviously there's, there's a, a linear progression, right? That it's not like once you move past the New Testament time period, all of a sudden people 30, 40 years after that are doing radically different things than people 30 years prior, right? right? And so um, it helped me to see a blind spot, perhaps, at least I thought it was, uh, in terms of uh, Paul's use of the Old Testament, that especially Richard Hayes' model uh, was really heavily looking back just at the Septuagint. So it's really uh, looking at uh, Paul's use of the Septuagint and then maybe also contextualizing that <coughs> within the boundaries of Second Temple Judaism uh, and looking at maybe the Dead Sea Scrolls and other uh, Jewish resources, but maybe not going beyond the New Testament to say, what can we learn about Paul by seeing uh, how those who received Paul what were they doing with them? Yeah. Right? That might actually teach us something about what Paul himself was doing. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was sort of a methodological insight that was generated partly from moving to the fathers um, that helped me to find my dissertation topic. Yeah, and that ended up being published uh, by Baylor? Yep. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. yep. The, uh, the Hermeneutics of the Apostolic Proclamation. You have a chapter in there on prosopological exegesis, mm -hmm. sort of what ended up being your you know, your birth of the Trinity. So uh, how did you get sort of into the prosopological exegesis thing? Or maybe you could give a definition of that first for those who don't know. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then obviously that was part of your dissertation. You kind of carried it into an even uh, larger work. So how'd you get into that? How'd you learn about it? And why has that been something that sort of kind of stuck with you? Yeah, well, I, I got into it via the avenue I just suggested as I was reading the early fathers and thinking a lot about Paul's you know, interpretation of the Old Testament. Um, the early, the early as Christians all borrow their interpretations from one another. There's no copyright on, yeah. on your interpretation. So if somebody has a good interpretation of the Old Testament, well, then it gets picked up by people subsequently, right? And they and they they keep recycling. Sometimes there's additions as people come up with new insights that are valid or not valid, or who knows, right? But there is some growth. But nevertheless, there's a lot of borrowing. So one of the things, one of the questions in my mind as I was reading Justin Martyr with intensity. Um, and looking at his interpretation of the Old Testament, both in his, his first and second apologies, but especially his dialogue with Trifo, which is one of my very favorite texts. Yeah, I think every time I've been with you, you've yeah. talked about Trifo. I love point. the dialogue <laughs> with Trifo. I mean, Justin Martyr and the dialogue with Trifo, that's just, it's an absolutely fascinating text because it's this, 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 this debate that an early Christian has with the Jew over what scripture means, Yeah, you know, from the second century. I mean, how interesting is that? Now, we would realize it's probably highly stylized and, and there's debate about the degree to which Justin really had this debate, but I think he did have some kind of conversation, and this is his later kind of literary workup of that. But it's absolutely fascinating. So as I was reading Justin's interpretation of the Old Testament, it sort of opened up some questions for me as, is he getting some of this from the New Testament? Yeah. Is Justin read it, the New Testament? Is he in conversation with our New Testament authors? Is it, what does he have? What 
What portions of the Old Testament or the New does he have? How does that impact his reading? And I think it's quite clear that he does borrow some of his exegesis from, um, from our New Testament authors and, and in some places from Paul. So as, as I was contemplating that, I, I began to notice that Justin and some of our early church fathers do a certain kind of interpretation uh, that's a person-centered mode of interpretation that I call prosopological exegesis. Uh, prosopological exegesis involves... It involves a Old Testament prophet um, entering into a different person and speaking from the vantage point of that person. So, for instance, um, a premier example of this would be in in Peter's Pentecost sermon, right, where uh, where Peter is reflecting on David, right, <clears throat> and he's he's speaking about David, and he he sort of speaks about David uh, giving this, this this these words in the Psalm, and he speaks about uh, his body not seeing decay, right, and then and then Peter says, well, David can't be saying this about himself. That doesn't make any sense. We know that David's body's in the tomb, right? We even know where it is to this day. <clears throat> but then he goes on and he says, but David was a prophet, right? Uh, and, uh, and so in so doing, he's, what he's doing is he's signaling that David was speaking in the person of the Christ. And so that those words in Psalm 16 uh, that speak about the body not seeing decay, right? That he was not speaking from his own vantage point, but he had slipped into a different person and was speaking from the person of the future Christ. So I would see this as a mode of prophecy um, that is, it's slightly different than other kinds of ways we might think about the, the, the use of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, so I identified that and, and showed where some early fathers were doing it, but also said, hey, look, it's happening in the New Testament too, and we need, we need a label for this and we need to talk about it uh, and to sort of raise the profile of this distinctive technique of the use, uh, of where we see a use of the Old Testament and the New. So you more or less came up with the term of cross-logical exegesis, but um, not the concept necessarily. Yeah, no, I didn't. No, and not the concept either. Um, yeah, there was an earlier scholar, Carl Andreessen, uh, okay. who was... Uh, he writes in German, so um, I can't even re remember so, the name. So nobody said it in English yet. <laughs> yes, I can't remember <laughs> the German title uh, of his article, unfortunately, off the top of my head. Uh, and then uh, a French scholar, uh, Marie-Joseph Rondeau, uh, had also worked on this, but they had mainly worked in terms of later uh, patristic authors. So looking at Tertullian, um, looking at Origen, uh, they, and, but they all, both of them had signaled like, hey, look, this happens earlier. Like we see it happening in Justin, and it plausibly goes back into the New Testament, and it sort of signaled like, hey, it looks like it might be happening there, but they hadn't, they hadn't developed any kind of argument in that direction. So, um, yeah, actually, Andreessen had called this, this, um, this prosopological exegesis, he had called it prosopographical exegesis. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's actually confusing terminology because socio sociologists use that language of, of prosopography in a different way. So um, Rondeau had proposed um, prosopography Topological exegesis, or the French version of that term. So writing versus word, basically. Yeah. So yeah, one would have to do with um, sort of seeing the logos as the inspiring agent. Yeah. Probably would be would be part of the logic behind prosopological. Yeah. Whereas prosopographic doesn't doesn't really have the same um, intonations of 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 the logos being the inspiring force. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so let's move on to uh, another uh, work of yours, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. That's been the one that's gotten you. You know, Birth of the Trinity was like, hey, this is really nice. Matthew Bates did this really good work on the Trinity and in early interpretation. Then Salvation by Allegiance Alone comes out, and that was a little bit more of a 
firestorm, for lack of a better word. You've had a lot of uh, feedback, both positive and negative on that. You've had some people write 20 to 30 page reviews about how terrible it is. You've had people write about how it's great. You know, Scott McKnight endorsed it and, and said really kind things about it. What has been the, uh, well, give a little thesis of that book and then kind of talk about just the reception of it, you know, how, how what you intended and then how it's kind of been sure. received so far. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the Salvation by Allegiance Alone book then is working uh, sort of at the interface of, you know, kind of Christian Christian discourse of kind of common language we use to speak about faith and wanting to, to problematize that a little bit and say that 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 term itself is not sacred, right? I mean, the, when the biblical authors were writing, they didn't use the term faith. They used the word pistis. So that we maybe need to do a little bit more work to unpack what this word pistis means in their day and their age. Um, and and so some of this is is on the one hand that certain English language ideas around faith um, maybe don't fit very well with what pistis meant in their culture. So it's maybe over time become less and less a good word to describe what we see in the Bible. And on the other on the other hand, it probably misses some 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 parts of meaning that are present in the word entirely, uh, and wanting to recover some of that. And so some of it is showing that in the ancient world, the word pistis could and did sometimes mean allegiance or loyalty. Uh, and unpacking the significance of that for understanding the New Testament um, and the saving message of Jesus. So that's 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 sort of the main idea. There's there's a lot more that could be said there. Um, moving to the second part of your question about response, yeah, over, overall the response has been overwhelmingly positive. Yeah. Um, there, yeah, there hasn't been much critique at all uh, until recently, uh, about a month ago, an article came out in Jets. Uh, that was the one you mentioned, and it's really the only strongly negative piece that's come out. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it's it's a longer critique of uh, salvation by allegiance alone. But at the end of the day, uh, I don't think that there's actually a lot of payoff to the article. Um, uh, I, I welcome all dialogue, but I do think that um, that there are some places where the author of that article, um, on the one hand, very selectively summarized portions of my work. Uh, there's some selective omission. Uh, and so there's some misrepresentation through part of that. And then draws some very questionable implications from that that I wouldn't draw myself. So I think that, um, yeah, there's room for further dialogue there. Uh, but I don't think there was anything in this article that would in any serious way challenge my thesis. Yeah, yeah, that was probably the so, big one. Yeah, and, and Tom Schreiner had the one at the Gospel Coalition that was not near as blistering yeah, uh, as, yeah, as that one. That one, that one expresses maybe some hesitancy. Um, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't a beat down. It was just some hesitancy. Yeah, yeah no, I would say overall, I think he expressed a lot of value in the book. But yeah, I think that he he might be nervous about some of the things I argue. But there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of meat and potatoes to his critique either. Mm. Um, it was more a, a, a rhetoric of concern. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah. So what would you say is the most kind of unfair characterization of what you're saying. I mean, I've seen, I've seen, you know, social media is all over the place and I've seen the, yeah. he's denying the Reformation. He's uh, not really a Protestant. He's, yeah. he's just trying to, to, to yeah. undo everything that Luther <laughs> did and et cetera. Yeah. Well, yeah. Certainly there are, um, a, a, I say a small sector of the audience, uh, that, that do wonder if maybe I might underneath my shirt sleeve have a large tattoo of Pope Francis, you know, that, <laughs> well, you uh, do work at a Catholic school yeah, after all. I work so. at a Catholic university. So that must mean therefore that, you know, I'm automatically Catholic. The irony <laughs> in that, of course, is that although I did do my PhD at Notre Dame, I actually wrote my PhD dissertation under a Lutheran. Oh, uh, some people who are a part of the world of higher education don't even understand how it works. They don't even understand that at a, at a university like Notre Dame, there are actually, you know, major research faculty that, that work there that don't 
that aren't Catholic, right? And who yeah. supervise doctoral dissertations. So yeah, a number of the leading figures aren't Catholic. Like James Vanderkam there uh, is not Catholic either, yeah. um, for instance. And he's probably, yeah, one of the leading doctoral supervisors in my area also. So yeah, it, it's it's one of those things that, you know, um, obviously people who are, um, don't like what you're saying for whatever reason, they're going to find any excuse they can to tar yeah. you with whatever possible tar they can tar you with. And uh, the Catholic tar for certain kinds of Protestant audiences, right? Well, if I can smear this person as a Catholic, well, then I could just discount everything they're saying and, mm. and make them discredible from the get-go, right? And I think that's what's happened. So that's been really the free grace movement people who, mm, okay. uh, people who are part of a movement that that would say that there there's no possible way that anything that we do with our body Bodies could have any possible bearing on our salvation in any way, uh, yeah. which is which is not what classical Protestantism teaches, right? But um, would be actually a, a sort of what I would I would consider a bastardization, right, of of, of uh, Protestant theology uh, it, that really happened in the 70s and 80s. So is it fair to say that you, uh, in some ways, disagree with kind of the reception of the Reformation more than the actual principles of the Reformation as far as uh, you know, faith alone and that kind of thing? Or how, how do you interact with, uh, how do you view how Luther did it, how the Reformers did it, how it's been received? How does that all kind of play into this? Yeah, sure. Well, no, certainly I think the, the Protestant Reformation was a great good. I'm a Protestant. And um, so the way that I would frame it would be that that we just need to be more nuanced in what we understand by faith alone, right? That when we, we, we talk about sola fide or whatever we, whatever language we want to use, we have to realize that, that the, the proper understanding goes back to pistis, right? And whatever we mean by that term, we, we have to ground in the ancient world and the biblical data. And that certain ways of, of constructing what pistis is by our Protestant reformers, perhaps were, there, there were some blind spots um, that we can recover today, um, not entirely blind, right? But I, I would say that, for instance, I would say that Luther probably overemphasized Romans 4 and overemphasized the idea that what pistis is, is that it's a response to the promise of God, and it's exclusively that. He was probably too restrictive. Uh, that's, that's obviously an important understanding of pistis, but we wouldn't want to say it's the only one. Right, uh, that there's that there's a richer kind of understanding. So Luther really hones in on pistis as trust, and I would say certainly yes, pistis does mean trust. Right, we, we have to see that dimension of it, but that doesn't mean that's all it means, and that doesn't mean that's uh, what it means in certain other passages in Paul's letters. They're very important too. That it shades into ideas of loyalty in those passages, and we have to take that seriously. Yeah, and do you think that maybe some of that is contextual as well? You know, Luther's responding to a certain to the Catholic Church to a certain type of argument. Uh, now you're looking at it from kind of a different context and a different day, saying, okay, let's look back a little bit. We've got you know, more information even on uh, ancient Judaism and Second Temple Judaism and stuff like that, so that gives us some insights. Do so you think some of it's contextual more than sort of just you know, dogmatic at its core? Yeah, some of it is contextual. Some of it is dogmatic at its core. Um, and, and so, it, it, again, that there are some some who, who want to ground everything in the Reformation, that you know, we can't possibly have made any advances since then, which which makes you wonder, why are people still writing books that then, uh, if they're all merely to point us back to the Reformation, mm. right? Um, as we, we have a lot of contemporary defenders that wanted to say, well, like Luther and Calvin just got it all right. And there's, there's not really any point in ever trying to go beyond that. And every time you do... What people end up in those camps doing, saying is like, well, oh, you, you caricatured Luther and you caricatured Calvin, and if well, you really understood what they were saying, you would understand that they've exhausted everything that you want to say anyway. Um, <laughs> I, I, I quite frankly find that 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 kind of argument to be very frustrating and 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 poor form, 
Um, oftentimes discussions of salvation get stopped right there because somebody says something about salvation that that might advance the conversation and then people stop the conversation by saying, well, you don't really understand Luther and Calvin. So you end up with this giant segue into what Luther and Calvin really said, right? Um, and, and then at the end of the day, I think you come back and you say, actually, no, my, my point that I was trying to say that advanced beyond them actually did have some small nuance that does advance beyond mm. and, and this whole segue did us no good, right? We actually do understand what they were saying quite well. Um, and so to, to pull the trump card out and just say like, oh, it's just a caricature. I find that to, to just be um, not very helpful. So one of the things I did in Salvation by Allegiance Alone is I didn't talk about Luther and Calvin's views at all, uh, other than just in a couple places where, where I referenced them more um, in an informative way, but not to sort of lay out what, there's no section in my book that says this is what Luther meant by faith, this is what Calvin meant by faith, uh, partly because I didn't want the, the whole conversation to get sidetracked. Yeah. And then ironically, there have been some reviewers have come out and said, well, he caricatures Luther and Calvin. Um, mm -hmm. Well, actually, uh, I didn't actually talk about them. So, so um, <laughs> may you not know, have read yeah, the book. Read my book with a little more care. <laughs> yeah, we, you know, we yeah. uh, a couple of friends of mine uh, and I, we started the Center for Baptist Renewal. We we're sort of trying to say, like, you know, Baptists should should care about the whole tradition. You know, uh, more modern Baptists, particularly, have not cared as much about anything before the Reformation. If the Reformation, if you can get that far, that far back. Um, and so we, we were trying to say, hey, we should appreciate the whole tradition. And part of that is is just you know we we get the critique of. Are you just trying to? Are you Baptist trying to pretend to be Anglicans? Are you trying to just be? Are you Bapto Catholics? You know that kind of thing. Um, if you're a Baptist, you can't appreciate Aquinas. You can't appreciate some of these things because that's not part of what a Baptist is. And historically speaking, that's not true. Uh, but there is a part of us that kind of, at least for me, not to speak for the other guys, but just sort of, you know, part of appreciating the tradition is taking the good things from the tradition and then saying, okay, now I'm looking at Scripture and I'm a Baptist. I'm not a Catholic. Uh, I don't agree with everything that Aquinas says about the sacraments or whatever. But at the same time, I appreciate what he did, and I want to take the good from what he did and, and, and appreciate it while also applying new context or denominational context or whatever to it. So in some sense, you know, your project can be seen as a critique of the Reformation in some ways, and, and fairly so, but also in some ways you're sort of an appreciative building upon the thing that you're a Protestant, so you appreciate Protestantism. Same thing with us. Like we're not Catholics, but we appreciate the things that, that the early creeds gave us. And I always find that frustrating as well when it's just sort of like, well, you're just trying to be a Catholic or you're just trying to uh, get rid of years of Baptist history. Or do you even care about the Reformation? You know, do you even yeah. Reformation, bro? And yeah. uh, we're just kind of like, yeah, we, we appreciate it. But we also yeah. uh, think we can apply some of those things to different contexts or to different denominations and still be appreciative of what they gave yeah. us. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's very important to do. I mean, anyone anyone who doesn't want to find the truth gladly wherever they can is just off base, right? We uh, denominationalism is dangerous in that way, right? It, it's there's, um, yeah, there's a, a desire to sort of say that we possess the entire truth, right? Mm -hmm. And and wanting to always to guard the fences. Um, and we shouldn't be guarding the fences so carefully, right? It can be destructive. And there's a lot of institutional coercion around such things, right? Yeah. Why, does, why, is the, why are the fences guarded? Oftentimes because seminary X, Y, or Z, what's the reason we exist? Well, because we're the Reform Seminary, or we're the Baptist Seminary, or we're the you know, um, Anglican Seminary. And so if we, if we give up our fences, well, then no one's going to come to our, us for, for training, yeah. Right. Um, and so we need so everyone's trying to play the game of like, no, no, we're distinctively Baptist or Anglican or whatever. But, hey, we're welcoming two to you ecumenically. But, hey, we really need to guard the fences. So there's a neurosis around it all. And, um, yeah, the, the, the more healthy thing to do is find the truth wherever we can. Right. Yeah. And to not care about these labels. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with having conviction. Yeah. 
yeah. and it's saying, you know, I, I'm convictional about these set of things that happen to be Baptist, but that doesn't mean that I'm the only Christian That's in the right. world. Yeah. The only one who's ever thought about theology before. Um, so you have some other, uh, you have some other things coming that you can talk about. Anything down the line? If you can, yeah. that's fine. You know, yeah, I know, um, I know I how can, publishers work. But. Yeah, I can say a little more. Um, I, yeah, I do have a couple projects coming that will follow up on the Salvation by Allegiance Alone book, and then another one that's intended in the slightly more distant future that will follow up on uh, the Trinitarian work. So. Um, the one, the one project is the only one I can maybe speak of because I, I just sent it into production and it actually has a title. Uh, the other ones, uh, they have unofficial titles yet, but uh, I'm hesitant to speak too much about just future contracts. But yeah, sure. the one is uh, the one is a certainty now is it's it's actually in production. So uh, that will be called the Gospel Must Change. Um, that's not that's not a that's not a controversial title. Yeah, at all. that's not a controversial title. No, forget no, about salvation all. by allegiance alone. Whatever you heard. Yeah. Um, so it will focus much more heavily on the gospel itself uh, than salvation by allegiance alone did. Okay, well, that's a good tease. That'll, yeah. that'll tease. When, when is that expected to be out? Do you know yet? Uh, I was just told last night. Um, I, it will be mid October, I believe. Okay, so, twenty nineteen. Okay. Yeah, yeah. These these things usually have a long a long horizon. You send something into production. Typically, in our field, it's about a year before yeah. it comes out. Yeah. Well, I wish I told you earlier. I wish I'd had the uh, recorder on when you were doing um, an entire nursery rhyme for me when we were doing uh-huh. mic check earlier. Uh, but you you know you, you I know you're really into fiction and things like that. I mean, we're having seven kids. You're probably almost forced into fiction sometime. Uh-huh. But uh, what are some of your favorite fiction novels? Some of the things you'd like to read. What are oh. some What are some things your kids enjoy? Yeah. Well, as with everyone else, I, I love some Marilyn Robinson recently. Yeah. Um, her trilogy, I read the whole thing, The Gilead and uh, Home and Lilla. Um, uh, they're all uh, really outstanding. Um, so I, I tend to gravitate uh, toward, probably not surprisingly, um, fiction that has um, strong religious and philosophical themes. <laughs> so uh, I've enjoyed some of her work. Graham Greene is one of my favorite authors. Uh, he's... Uh, a Catholic that struggles a lot with his Catholic tradition, hmm. I think, um, and he has um, he has a real depth to his character development and a realism. Uh, I find him just a very compelling author. So, uh, some Flannery O'Connor recently. Um, I was reading short stories of, of hers. Um, let's see what else. You haven't missed, you haven't mentioned the great Saint C.S. Lewis or J.R. Oh, Tolkien yet. Gosh, Is that not, I, are they not on no, your? I've, uh, I've read those endlessly. Yeah, I've read. Uh, the Space Trilogy of Lewis, um, as an adult, read that several times. I obviously read the Narnia Chronicles, uh, you know, to my my children, but read those, you know, probably my, my we've read those twice to our children, but I read them a number of times myself, <clears throat> you know, growing up. Um, but, yeah, beyond that, I love uh, Lewis's The Great Divorce would be one of my yeah, favorites. Yeah, probably my favorite Lewis. Tell We Have Faces is his other one that might be right at the top yeah. uh, for me, um, which is kind of a work on on how we know what's true. It's It sort of has to do with epistemology and, mm-hmm. and, and questions of metaphysics. Uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a pretty sophisticated book. Yeah, well, I just wanted to save you there because you can't talk about fiction and be a Christian uh, and not mention O'Connor yeah. and Lewis, or yeah, else you're, you're a heretic. Yeah, so. that's that's true. But another one I would mention is Michael D. O'Brien, who's also a Catholic author, um, and he has a um, a, a six book series um, that are called. I think it's called. The, the Children of the Last Days, is that what it How about I Google called? it while we're... While yeah, we're that maybe is not what the series Michael is called. Michael O'Brien. Yeah, Michael D. O'Brien. But the the, the first one um, uh, in the series, now I'm going to forget the name. Um, ah, gosh, it's one of my favorite novels of all time. I can only remember the other titles, but the one um, 
Uh, Sophia House is, is one. Father Elijah, those are some of the really well-known ones. They're all excellent. Father Elijah was the one that um, that probably sold the best, but Strangers and Sojourners is the name of the first one. Okay, Sophia, uh, Sophia House, Eclipse yeah, of the Sun. Eclipse of the Sun, yeah. yeah. All of them are excellent, excellent books. Um, yeah, I've not but, heard of him before. Yeah, no, they're they're really, again, like if you want like character depth, like, yeah, the, the character in the um, Strangers and Sojourners book that is the first one in the series, I mean, after you read it, you feel, I felt like I knew her better than I knew my wife. I mean, <laughs> I mean, just in the sense of like kind of the depth of like kind of interpersonal like character development is yeah. so sophisticated. And then I'm thinking like a man wrote this about a woman. Like, I mean, it's pretty credible. Yeah. At least it seemed like to me, but maybe that's because I'm a man and it seemed like that's how I should understand a woman. I have no idea. Yeah, that's fair. That's but fair. yeah, very, uh, uh, yeah, outstanding uh, fiction writer, I think. Yeah, so. And so you're at Quincy University out there around the border yeah. of Missouri and Illinois. Yep. And uh, I know you like to hike, but is there anywhere to actually hike out there? Is that... You're on the Mississippi uh, there River, is. so it's like you could yeah. swim, swim uh, before you'd gosh. be hiking. But. Yeah, in that filthy river? I don't know. Um, yeah, I'd be afraid of it, you know, getting eaten by you know, a giant catfish or yeah, something. Yeah, who knows? But uh, yeah, there's, there's, some, there's some nice hiking around the Quincy area. It's, you know, it's light hardwood forests you know, around a lot of farmland. Um, but yeah, there's a place, Siloam Springs, we like to go out, State Park. We camp out there sometimes too. I grew up as a uh, the son of a forester, so I have a love for the great oh, outdoors. Yeah. yeah, and there's like a, in this, I don't know if they're native or not, but in this in this Siloam, um, Siloam Park, uh, there's actually a stand of um, eastern white pine. And I grew up under the Ponderosa Pines in Northern California, and just the, even the scent of the pine, I get under there and it just, it brings like a flood of memories and just emotions. Nostalgia. And yeah, I just am overwhelmed by it. So whenever we camp, I like to go camp under the, the, the pines and do the kids like the camper yes half and yes. half they're, all, all they're always begging yeah to go yeah they love to hike too and we we go out and hike in the fall i mean close to every weekend oh, wow. a couple miles whole family yeah so we pack put the kids on the back and we go for it it's a good way to have uh, facetime with the family and wear them all out for yeah, uh for, night, for bedtime right <laughs> it is all right well thanks so much matt for doing this yeah thank you